uh, just to start things off here, one question you spoke about life in the bubble. Usually we think of bubbles as something that um, have a tendency uh, to burst and to burst soon. Is this, you see this situation as something that cannot go on and that will inevitably burst? No, on the contrary, it, all of the forces tend to, to uh, reproduce it. And, and chief among these is uh, the, the college sorting machine. The American university system has gotten really, really efficient at sorting people by ability. And the good part of that is a lot of this, by the way, those of you who read the bell curve, as opposed to reading the reviews of the bell curve, <laughs> know, know, know it's in there. Uh, uh, we've gotten really efficient at identifying talent, and that's good in the sense that, that kids who grew up in a small town in Kansas uh, or who grew up in uh, Bed-Stuy and wouldn't have had a chance, even though they had the talent, now are identified and sent to really good schools. That's fine. Uh, the problem is that a great deal of the talent is now coming from the upper middle class because what's, what you've had over the last 50 years is increasing intermarriage of high-ability people. So that whereas in 1960, uh, what did the graduate from uh, Yale, who did he marry? He probably married someone who was from a similar social station, who might or might not have been very bright. Uh, who does the graduate of Yale marry now? <laughs> Marries another graduate of Yale. Or uh, if he's an attorney, he meets his uh, wife, uh, who was a fellow negotiator from another law firm, and she went to Harvard. And well, the thing is, you pass along to your children not just money when you're successful now. That's always been the case. You pass along talent. So that the percentage of kids who have SAT scores at the top now who come from upper middle class families is incredibly high, and it's not because they're taking test preparation courses. It's because that's where a lot of the talent is. So that you have, you have all sorts of forces, Roger, uh, which are at work now to conserve elite status in ways that didn't used to exist. It's not shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves in three generations nearly as much now as it used to be. Interesting. Uh, Roger. Can you wait, could you wait for a microphone? Charles, is, is it working? Yes. yes. Okay. Charles, it, it appears that Lower-income, lower-class whites are following, or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but so you can finish the sentence, are following the pattern of what happened in, for African-Americans, blacks, Latinos. And we now have, thanks to you, um, we have 50 years of data in the patterns of those communities. What can we learn about what's happened in those, community, those communities as it represents a model, if it does? And that's really the question. There are two questions here. Um, if it represents a model for what's happening in Fishtown. Think, think of it in terms of a combination of changes in incentives in a concrete way and changes in social norms. So that so you, you get the reforms of the 1960s, which did, in fact, make it a lot easier. Let's go with the marriage out of wedlock. 
which made it a lot easier for a young woman to have a baby and keep it and raise it than it was before. But there was also huge social stigma against it. Well, where are those changes in incentives first going to be observed? They are going to be observed in areas which are the most impoverished, in which the, those changes in financial incentives have the most power and so forth. And that was, statistically speaking, more in the African-American community than it was in the white community. You expect those things to pop up first there. But as that happens, you also get a weakening in social norms. So if you are the only girl in your high school who is getting pregnant, <laughs> you're a, you know, you've got problems in terms of social stigma. If, as there are then three or four or five in the graduating class, that diminishes. And once you get up to 10 or 12 and the school is providing a daycare center for, for uh, students to bring their kids to, the social stigma is gone. It, it happened first, in, I would say, in the African-American community because that was at the bottom of the heap. The same thing happened in Fishtown. Uh, there is a serendipitously, I didn't know this existed when I picked Fishtown, serendipitously there was a very good ethnographic study of Fishtown done in the 1990s by a dissertation student at the University of Pennsylvania, which is just interview after interview with what's going on. I read that and I said... <laughs> This looks exactly like ethnographic accounts of black communities in the 1960s. So I don't think that you've got an ethnically different uh, set of uh, dynamics going on. And I think that, that you can sort of say there's a 10-year lag. And Fishtown is about 10 years behind black lower class communities, but that's pretty much the difference. And the social capital within Fishtown, as it erodes, it's going to catch up, I think, probably. Uh, with on these statistics with African American communities. Daniel, uh, Charles, um, I was very interested in 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 the uh, is this working uh, in the um, point about religiosity and secularization. Of course, in Europe we've gone very much further in that yes. direction. Um, but one of the things that, as many commentators, notably for example George Weigel, have pointed out that accompanies secularization is depopulation. Basically, people stop having children. Is this going to happen in the United States? Uh, is it, I mean, you, you paint this picture of this upper class, uh, you know, that is uh, presumably you're suggesting is, 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 is increasingly resembling the class system in, in Europe. But, but won't that class stop passing on its genes simply because it won't have any children? Yeah, and you can look at the, at the birth rates in, among evangelical Christians in the United States uh, versus uh, the secular, and the birth rates for evangelical Christians are considerably higher. Uh, so how that will demographically play out is very dicey because, as, as you were saying, it's a big mistake to say that because you've got a trend going on now, it's going to go on forever, and this is especially true with demographics. But right now, there is uh, going to be, over time, much faster increases in the population, or at least sustaining the population in middle-class America, not necessarily working-class America, middle-class America and evangelical America than there is in the upper class. However, we also keep co-opting each new generation of talent into this new upper-class culture. So you have the child of evangelical parents who is really bright and uh, gets shipped off to Harvard. Well, some of them will sustain their, their evangelical uh, beliefs under that uh, pressure, but a lot of them won't. 
And so the, it's, it's sort of like the Chinese co-opting each new generation into, through its exam system. Uh, we're getting very good at doing that with elite colleges, so I'm not sure that the differential birth rates give us that much hope. Jim? Charles, thank you. Did you look at the number of people in Fishtown and Belmont on public assistance of one kind or another? Well, by definition, you're going to have very few in Belmont on public assistance because um, uh, income is associated with education and profession. So the, the answer is that, that in Fishtown, that proportion has skyrocketed. It hasn't in Belmont, but, but this is sort of a function of, of the way I defined the groups. Uh, in Fishtown at this point, however, it has gotten it has gotten to levels where the mother, father, intact biological family making their own way uh, without help from the government has become virtually non-existent. Um, and that is a radical change from 1960 when that was the norm. James? The first thing that uh, jumps out on the uh, Banfield study, and I'm happy to hear you quote Banfield because I love that book, uh, is that his American example was in St. George, Utah, which is probably over 95% Mormon. I'm wondering if we have current statistics on St. George, uh, Utah, and whether it's any less today in terms of civic participation than it was when uh, Banfield wrote the book. And that gets me to the next part of the question, which is a continuation of the demographic discussion that we had, which is you're taking uh, places from the East Coast. We know there's a uh, kind of a gradient on these things between uh, the East and West Coast and the center of the country, particularly the so-called Republican L of the Southern and Mountain West states. And living in the Mountain West as I do now, I know that many of these um, trends, I don't know, just anecdotally, they seem to be much uh, weaker than uh, they do on the East and West Coast. Do you have any data on what the regional distribution of this is within the United States? Because we may be seeing a pattern arising where the, the smart children of evangelicals doesn't go to Harvard even though he could get in because they specifically prefer to go to a, uh, a more religious-oriented university and if you get this core of religious people choosing to go to those universities, they may upgrade their curriculum to the point where they can replace Harvard, at least for some purposes. With regard to St. George today, I can't tell you about St. George, but I can tell you that social capital has not declined very much in Belmont. That by all the measures we have, most of which come from the general social survey, uh, Belmont still has a pretty lively public square. And uh, a lot of the things that that these towns used to do, they still do do. Uh, and and uh, I, I don't think there's any reason to think that St. George is going to deteriorate very much either. It does seem to be concentrated in um, lower-class communities. I will say parenthetically, by the way, you may be asking yourself, what happened to these trend lines for all the communities in between Belmont and Fishtown? I looked at all those, uh, and the answer is the trend line is always in between the other two, uh, without exception. With regard to the, the geographical distribution, I cannot give you numbers on this, but I can give you some, some observations. The first is that uh, one of the great scourges in white working class America is meth, methamphetamines, 
and that is concentrated in Midwestern, rural states, and also a lot of the Mountain West. Uh, and it has ravaged uh, working-class white America in, in those parts of the country. And I can also give you the example of Burkittsville, Maryland. Now, Burkittsville, Maryland is still on the East Coast, but this is where I live. Uh, it's, uh, it's rural. It's the, we're, we're not talking. <laughs> it, feels like, it feels like the Midwest. And uh, we've lived there since 1989. Every single one of these things that I was observing in the numbers for working-class white America, my wife and I would look at each other and say, yeah, well, we're seeing the same thing in Burkittsville. Uh, my guess is, yeah, because I don't have any more systematic way to put it, is that there is remarkably little variation in, in white working class uh, regionally. In white middle class and upper class, there well could be. So that, for example, uh, while there is definitely a liberal tilt to the new upper class, if you go to Kansas, there's not. You know, the, 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 the upper class neighborhoods in, in Wichita and, out, and to, on the Kansas side of uh, Kansas City are uh, staunchly uh, uh, conservative. And I have a feeling that a lot of the things you see going on in towns out there in terms of social capital and the rest of it are still quite traditional. I think that the deterioration, oh, parenthetically again, the Tea Party is mostly, I think, middle class, white middle class, not, not working class. I think it's specifically the white working class which is forming, relative to what Roger asked earlier, is forming a, a kind of counterpart to the underclass that we have identified uh, with minorities in the past. Um, this question, um, Charles, relates to the end of your talk where you would describe the, the greater social uh, stratification with uh, two parts of America hardly knowing each other. Um, it, when I want to annoy Europeans, I always say that the most social democratic country in the world is the United States uh, in the sense that um, ordinary Americans feel a greater confidence in expressing their own judgments and politics and other questions than they do elsewhere. They, sh they show, it seemed to me, much less uh, deference to elite opinion and experts and, and people in the classes above them than, than in other countries. And I remember the same thing from the England of my youth, too. Uh, I wonder whether that has been yet or is likely to be affected by what you're describing. And it's hard, obviously, to get figures on this kind of thing. But uh, what's your impression? I've, I consider one of the most heartening things to have happened in the last decade to have been the Tea Party. And the tea, talk about lack of deference to elite opinion. <laughs> uh, but also, it's, it, as I know that there are dark stories about the Tea Party. What I mostly hear is a bunch of ordinary Americans, middle class rather than upper class, who have a pretty sound grasp of what the founders had in mind and said, we've departed from that and that's wrong. And I think that is exactly what you were talking about when you told your European friends America is such a social democratic country. It, it is a spontaneous uprising of Americans saying, this is wrong, we've had enough. And so that is, for me, one of the few, but it's a very important um, source of optimism. Could you wait for the microphone? Sorry. Uh, I know you said you don't want to speak to solutions, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on where you see these trends going, particularly when we account for uh, other variables such as 
the economy, the Tea Party, etc. I'm sorry, I, I, I just I, I didn't quite hear where, where we're going to go. Where we're going? Well, uh, in the last chapter of the book, I present a pessimistic and an optimistic scenario, and I guess I've already given enough of the pessimistic aspect. Uh, there are some things that are going to happen over the course of the next decade, uh, which are going to change, have the potential to change things for the better. The first thing is we are going to be watching what happens to the European welfare state, and it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be pretty much a disaster. I'm not talking about the current debt crisis. I am talking about the combination of, of rising social welfare costs, falling uh, population, falling marriage, increases in dependent populations, and all sorts of things which are going to drive the, the, the European welfare state to radical change within the next 10, 15 years, I think, whether they want to or not, just because of the dynamics. Uh, or it will, they'll increase their immigration in order to have workers who can pay taxes, and that'll destroy a lot of the cultural resources of those states. Uh, the second thing that's going to happen is a great deal of the um, intellectual foundations of the liberal modern welfare state are going to implode, I think, as we get new scientific knowledge of all kinds but a lot of it coming from neuroscience and uh, of the genesis. I'll give you one really quick example that I've, I've used before. I, I talk all the time about how I think birth to a uh, single woman has been a social catastrophe because the male-female biological parent combination is really important. Forget about morality, just in terms of the way human beings are hardwired to be socialized. Well, I think we're going to prove that. I think we're going to prove... Uh, in a way that is just not going to be deniable, uh, and we're going to prove it biologically, that human beings flourish best with both biological parents raising the child, and that we've got to stop talking about the two-parent family as being one of many alternatives that we can work with. I think that's going to be... That's, and, and that kind of change in our understanding of the way human beings work is going to make it a lot harder to continue to advocate a lot of the policies that the social engineers have advocated. Third thing that's going to happen, there's going to be, it's going to be increasingly obvious that there's an alternative. This country spends an incredible amount of money to do something that's really simple to do. You know the old statement, if we'd only divide up all the money we spend on the poor, people wouldn't be poor anymore? <laughs> well, that didn't used to be true. It is now. Uh, and at some point, it's been true for a while, and for, to me it already looks crazy that we have a couple of trillion dollars spent on transfer payments when a very large proportion of the American population doesn't need transfer payments of any kind. Okay? At some point over the next decade, it's going to become obvious to everyone that this is nuts, that we're spending these incredible amounts of money to keep people out of poverty and pay for their medical costs and so forth, when just there's a real simple alternative, give them the money. Um, I, I think, to put it another way, we are going to see that we can replace the apparatus of the welfare state while meeting the stated goals of the welfare state. The advocates of the welfare state won't like it because it won't require nearly as many bureaucrats and nearly as many regulations, but that alternative is going to become obvious. So there are forces that could work in the direction of resuscitating 
a uh, simulacrum of some sort of, of uh, the founder's ideal of people left free to live their lives as they see fit, coming voluntarily together to solve their problems. It could happen. Probably won't. Uh, one more question, and then. Do you see a role for social media in all this, in accelerating this change that you're talking about? I certainly see a role for the Internet in new forms of social capital. Uh, I have seen through experiences my own family has had really powerful ways in which social capital is occurring is, and, and human communities are forming in ways we have never seen before and it's going to be very hard to anticipate how those will play out. And, and, and in some senses that's good because the examples in my mind are ones which are just as classic forms of social capital as taking a casserole to somebody who's sick. You know, they're, 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 they're the real thing. That's the good news. The bad news is who are the people that are engaging this? Not Fishtown, Belmont. It's it's uh, it's another one of the cases of the rich getting richer in ways that have nothing to do with money. Thank you, Charles. Um, well, I, I note that uh, the budget of optimism seems to be inching up slightly. So I'm I'm, I'm glad that uh, our next paper is Andy McCarthy. I'm counting on you, Andy, to restore the balance of gloom.